the only reason this project can exist is thanks to your support. So if you have the means and want to uphold the delivery of free online content on the academic study with terrorism, please consider pledging to my Patreon, sending one-off PayPal donations, or joining the channel as a member. All links in a pinned comment. Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Angela Puka and welcome back to my symposium. As you know, I'm a PhD and a university lecturer, and this is your online resource for the academic study of magic, paganism, esotericism, and all things occult. Today I have a super special guest here with me. <laughs> we are still in, uh, in Pisa for the Conference of the European Association for the Study of Religions at the University of Pisa. And I have here the pleasure of introducing you, Dr. Ben Christian Otto. Yep. From the University of Leipzig. Leipzig. <laughs> I was very scared of mispronouncing it, but I will, I will put it on screen. Um, Benz has published extensively uh, on topics related to, to magic and in the field of hystericism. In fact, I will be putting on screen a few of his publications. And uh, also, don't forget to check the info box because, as always, you will find uh, his publications and his website and contact details. So, um, yeah, I'm really happy to have you here. Thank you so much for being on my symposium. Thanks for having me. Great <laughs> and, opportunity. Yeah, and you also delivered a paper um, on the resilience of magic, and I have been following your work on the conceptualization of magic and we also had conversations which obviously you weren't part of <laughs> but, mm -hmm. but we had um, a couple of conversations on the concept of magic so i guess the first question that i'd like to ask you is um, about the concept of magic um, according to to your study and your research how did we develop the understanding of magic that we have today um, and uh, yeah, how the, the concept of magic developed over time? That's a tough question to begin <laughs> with. So maybe I, um, I sketch out a bit my own uh, process uh, of engaging with the concept of magic. Sure. So I started maybe 15 years ago uh, with the question why nobody was actually able to define magic. Mm -hmm. That was my very first question while I was still a student and there were so many theories uh, and definitions of magic so I was quite puzzled and um, then that was actually my master thesis I started uh, instead of defining magic or theorizing magic I started to historicize magic so to actually write a history of the term and that's what I then later did in my PhD thesis it's a, it's a German book a big German book which I published 2011 mm -hmm. and what I attempted there was actually to circumvent the problem of defining magic by um, going through the history of, of the concept of magic so the conceptual history of magic Begriffsgeschichte in German and instead of trying to find a semantic core or a, a unifying principle uh, to do the exact opposite namely to uh, sketch out the extreme heterogeneity of the concept of magic over time. And in that book I started basically with the Persian Magush, so this high priest uh, during the Achaemenid Empire, which was then Gracicized 
into Magos uh, around 500 before Christ in, in classical Greece by authors such as Herodot, Euripides, and maybe poets and philosophers. And that's where the story began. So uh, magic started in, in the Western history as a concept of, uh, so to speak, the priest of the enemy. Okay. The priest of the enemy. Yes, the Persians were yeah. at war with the, with the Greek uh, city-states, the Persian Wars, the famous Persian Wars, and Herodotus' account of the Persian Wars is actually our first uh, fully-fledged account of, of the, the Persian magicians, which were priests in that case, which performed like rites for, for the kings and all sorts of rites also during the Persian Wars. And um, quite quickly, one or two generations later, the term magician became like a bad word in Greek. So if you wanted to offend someone or discredit someone, you used that particular term, which used to be the, the priest of the enemy. But now suddenly, uh, there were these wandering ritual specialists, or wandering around the Greek city-states that offered ritual services to like rich citizens of Athens, for instance, to purify themselves and to have advantages in the afterlife. And suddenly they were also called magicians, but in a negative, in a negative polemical way. And that's basically where the, the conceptual history started as a polemical history, an anti-magical history. So the term was used to other others and uh, very quickly, also, uh, already during the, the classical Greek period, three big anti-magical stereotypes emerged. Namely, one, magic is anti-religious, so uh, it's blasphemy, it's, it's not religion, it's the opposite of religion. Uh, two, it's non-efficacious, so it, it does not work. And three, uh, it's anti-social. And these three stereotypes are as old as the conceptual history of magic. And they run through the history of, through Western cultural history until today, I would say. So there are still anti-magical polemics going on now. For instance, uh, when you consider the, the book burnings of Harry Potter books in the Bible Belt uh, during the early 2000s, it's still the same uh, way of thinking and there is also it's also an intercultural anti-magical uh, debate, you could say. There are also anti-magical polemics in uh, Islamic and in Jewish history. And these are also interrelated, all these polemics. So, that's part of the story, okay? Part of the history of, of magic, or the conceptual history of magic, is that there is a massive anti-magical discourse going on from the classic, classical Greek period until today. Um, and then, at some point, a second story emerged. Uh, because suddenly, and this begins much earlier than many people think, uh, people started to identify with the term magic, and also, the, to begin with, the word magic, and then also all sorts of ritual practices associated with that term and started to call themselves magicians. And the first corpus of sources where we actually have this uh, is um, the Greek magical papyri. So late ancient Egypt, 
suddenly we have uh, tons of texts where ritual texts where people start uh, claiming that they are actually magicians and practicing magic and uh, this is quite interesting in itself because it's almost a thousand years after the polemical use started off so we might say that the the positive or the identificatory use of magic started significantly later or after the polemical use. But then it goes on. So from the Greek magical papyri onwards, uh, we have a continuous history of people identifying with the term, people doing practices that they call magic. And um, this history uh, was actually the topic of my um, second big project after I wrote the conceptual history, the German book, uh, I started to focus exclusively on these what I call self-referential magicians and tried to reconstruct this history of their, I call it a tradition, I call it a textual ritual tradition uh, because for a long time you only have texts and rituals because it was forbidden you have only pseudonyms and you can hardly reconstruct practitioners but you have the texts and you have the rites uh, and I call this tradition Western learn Learned Magic and um, this is a fascinating tradition, fascinating history I started to work on that so maybe seven years ago and wrote quite a few case studies on um, on aspects of this textual tradition of Western learned magic. For instance, I studied an, a huge collection of uh, manuscripts of learned magic that uh, today sit in the University Library of Leipzig. In fact, so it's 140 handwritten manuscripts from the early 18th century, many of them translated into German. And um, I wrote a book about this uh, collection, for instance, and uh, I also worked on medieval uh, manuscripts, also a bit on Arabic stuff. So there is an intercultural exchange uh, going on basically throughout the whole history. And uh, recently, over the past years, I have worked a lot on contemporary uh, practitioners and tried to uh, kind of sketch out a bit the modern history of magic today it's often spelled with a K and um, many scholars would maybe consider it to be a new religious movement or belonging to a new age or modern spiritualities but when you look at the sources and when you have a long-term um, perspective it is part and parcel of this long-term tradition of Western learned magic um, for instance, uh, let's take for instance Stephen Skinner, he works with the Goetia. Stephen Skinner is a contemporary practitioner and uh, the Goetia was edited in 1904 by Alistair Crowley but the text itself in fact goes back uh, to the uh, mid-16th century, that's where basically the text for the first time is graspable but parts of the text go back to the 13th century and are clearly derived also from Arabic and uh, Jewish manuscript sources and these, in turn, they have relations to the Greek magical papyrus. So um, it is really a fascinating uh, continuity, history of continuity of certain things, but also a lot of changes. And this is one of the core aspects of my own historical work, is uh, to not reconstruct the history of 
Western known magic uh, as something that is always the same, <laughs> the same in green as we say in German, das gleiche in grün. No, it's, uh, it changes all the time. It's extremely adaptive, uh, it's extremely uh, flexible, pragmatic. Magicians have always been on top of, of their, I don't know, culture. Uh, they observed what's going on, they, they were always highly adaptive and usually Western learned magic uh, was um, an elitist tradition. I mean, it still today is. Many practitioners have university degrees. It's not, it's not about ir irrationality here, okay? Many are watching yes. uh, an academic <laughs> YouTube channel. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was the same in pre-modern pre times. So it's a, I, that's why I call it learned magic, uh, because it's a textual tradition. And uh, until the 19th century, or maybe mid-18th century, only 5% of the population could write, depending on the milieu or the country where you look at. And in fact, these texts are so highly complex, uh, you often have to have multi-language competencies and uh, uh, you need to have time to practice like uh, 18 months of Abramelin or uh, I don't know, what have you. Um, and you need resources to create all these uh, nice tools and ropes and swords. So it's a, it's, a, it's a rich man's thing, we might say. Yeah. I'm not saying that all pra practitioners are always rich. Actually, when you look into the modern history of magic, it seems to be the opposite. Uh, yeah, I, I mean... <laughs> so, tech, uh, uh, what money magic seems to be one of the most difficult disciplines. <laughs> but uh, what about witchcraft? Do you, um, you know... Uh, because usually like in witchcraft and folk witchcraft, they actually use, you know, very mosaic things, mm -hmm. uh, like herbs and things that, that you yeah. would find in the kitchen. Yeah. So I guess that uh, you're, referring, you're referring more to the ceremonial yes. aspect. Yes. Some people call that ceremonial magic. I call it learned magic. Okay. And I would try to indicate that this is a textual tradition. Okay. So I'm not, with this, I'm not focusing on oral traditions. Okay. which have always been around, okay? And there is always in, uh, an, a mutual exchange and um, mutual influences, but these are hard to reconstruct because we don't have any basis for reconstructing pre-modern oral traditions, you know? Um, we, we often only have um, descriptions from the outside, which are often polemical. And only in Western magic we have, as it were, descriptions from the inside, from the practitioners themselves, who wrote it down. And therefore, I mean, of course I'm interested in the history of witchcraft, also the persecution history, uh, which is, uh, I mean, fascinating from a historical viewpoint. And it's also fascinating when you interrelate the history of the witch hunts or witch persecutions to the history of Western magic because both had a peak at the same time. Mm. So when you, when you think of the Hexenhammer being published, I think in 1486, and ex almost exactly in the same year, Massilo Ficino published De Vita Libri Tres, which is like the foundational work of the early modern discourse on Magia Naturalis, which then kind of completely captured the mind of humanists for almost a century. So many people were uh, uh, publishing about Magia Naturalis, thinking that finally we have found uh, kind of a fundamental force in nature, which they called Magia Naturalis, um, 
and which is this, the force that makes the lodestone attract metal, that makes um, seeds uh, develop into flowers, and maybe also which makes the the wandering stars move across the sky. Um, and actually, I mean, uh, in the history of ideas, some people say that Magia Naturalis is like the predecessor of Scientia Naturalis, so there was a gradual development. And uh, it's just interesting to see that uh, at the time of the peak of the witch hunts, which is between 1480 and maybe 1620, exactly at the same, at the same time we have these very learned uh, humanists talking about, ma about magic all the time, often also under, under danger, dangerous conditions. And the final example is of course Giordano Bruno, but Marcelo Fino, Ficino, for instance, and uh, Agrippa of Nettesheim, they, they had to defend themselves sometimes, but they kind of got out of it, uh, even though they published really strong stuff, I would say. Yeah. So Tommaso Campanella. Yeah. 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 So this is, this is interesting, and this also indicates that this learned discourse was, of course, a, a male thing, okay? And the witch stereotype was rather female. Um, and rather illiterate, so we have two different notions here going on at the same time, which are, however, strongly re related, of course. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, and also this idea that you were mentioning about um, the fluidity of magic and how adaptive it is, mm -hmm. adaptive it is, uh, reminds me of one of the concepts that you talk about in your work, which is magic as a floating signifier. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell us a bit more about, uh, about that? Yeah. So, when I started working on the conceptual history in my German book, uh, I started off with the hypothesis that magic is an empty signifier. Which comes from Foucault, I guess. Yes, Foucault and Derrida. And uh, I thought that magic actually means nothing. <laughs> Uh, because it means so many things uh, and it changes its means, meaning all the time depending on the speaker and the context and the discourse he or she belongs to. Uh, so I, I was kind of overwhelmed and thought, oh well, let's just argue that magic is, is an empty signifier and let's just discard the term, you know, even as scholars. Everybody uses it, but we should not use it because uh, it's so difficult to grasp. Um, but then I changed my mind almost 180 degrees over the last uh, 10 years, I would say. And uh, my compromise would be that it's a floating signifier, which still basically says the same thing, namely that magic can change its meaning depending on the context all the time. But still, there are uh, s structures of stability which you can actually uh, pinpoint and reconstruct and these are not arbitrary, so there are fixed meanings. As, as I said in the polemical discourse, there are the, these big three stereotypes, which are almost constant, uh, over two and a half million, millennia, and they don't even change. It's always the same, I don't know, boring accusation. Uh, so here we have some clear stability. Um, but the, the even more interesting thing is uh, when you look at the practicing magicians. Uh, what they understand under magic from late antiquity over the, let's say, Arabic Middle Ages, early modern times, then maybe 18th, 19th century when the Enlightenment kicks in, and then of course from the late 19th 
century onwards when the so-called I mean it was never a revival a revival according to my perspective I think it just went through but yeah things changed in the 19th century and then in the modern time there's so much different um, so there are so many different ritual techniques groups currents uh, that is uh, obviously highly heterogeneous and changeable all the time and um, I find it very interesting to look at this history as a history of change and also a history of innovations, ongoing innovations. So you can actually trace innovations almost every every 50 years in pre-modernity, okay? So it starts off in, 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 uh, in the Greek magical papyri as an art of conjuring spirits and the spirits are a vast array of gods and you have uh, all sorts of basic techniques um, which of course continue but then in the Arabic Middle, Middle Ages you suddenly or quite quickly have a completely different idea that namely that you draw down the power of the stars in an almost mecha mechanical manner into an object which is, which is then the talisman uh, there you don't need any spirits and um, so it goes on uh, you have alphabets of characters these weird ring letters suddenly kicking in at, at some point and then um, yeah many techniques over the centuries fascinating uh, complexity and heterogeneity of techniques especially in the Leipzig collection which I mentioned previously there are so many different recipes it's just um, uh, overwhelming again to, to uh, even map and uh, uh, typologize this heterogeneity it is possible, and I find this the most interesting thing to do, because then magic is not just a label that you can clutch onto something indicating that it's weird, uh, but in fact uh, it is extremely multifaceted and has tons of sub-techniques and sub-schools. And I mean, especially then in the modern period, you have group formation, which really kicks in in the 19th century, with uh, the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor, Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, and uh, the Martinist Order, and uh, maybe the Fraternita Saturnia, and all these other groups. This is also an innovation, it's a social innovation. Suddenly, a magician's group, uh, I would say for the most part of uh, the history of Western North magic, it was rather a soloist thing, okay? In the, in the historical sources, in the pre-modern sources, it is hard to detect groups or even only teacher-pupil relations. Mm -hmm. You can sometimes find instances, but it's, um, it's not what it's about. But then in the 19th century, group rituals are developed uh, kind of out of the blue or from scratch. Like uh, what Mathers did with the rituals of the Golden Dawn, I mean, they basically invented them and then many, many other groups followed and wrote their own rituals and this is also a very interesting innovation there's tons of modern innovations I could, I could talk about this for hours but uh, I make a break here <laughs> you also keeping up with the theme of the conference which is about resilient religions mm -hmm. uh, you gave a paper on uh, the resilience of esotericism yeah. Um, so magic in particular. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Yeah. The, mm -hmm. I was thinking about our panel, which yes. was on <laughs> resilient esotericism, but you gave a paper on the resilience of magic. Mm 
So can you tell us a bit more about that? How come magic is so resilient? Even though, you know, we live in a society and we have been living for a very long time in a society where magic is not particularly welcome, how come it still exists and persists? Now, that's a good question. That was actually the topic of my lecture yesterday here. <laughs> that's why I'm asking. Yes, and um, it's also an interesting question that has kind of occupied my mind for a bit. Um, because there has been a debate in the study of Western esotericism why magic survived the disenchantment of the modern world. That's a famous article written by Walter Harnikoff in 2003. He basically formulated the question for quite a few people who then also wrote about this and they uh, developed different answers I would say um, and one uh, particularly I would say successful theory is the so-called psychologization of magic so magic survives um, the secularization whatever it is I mean in, in, uh, in academia there is no consensus as to what secularization actually is and or whether it actually occurred. whether it actually happened or how it happened, but that's a, another story. Yes. Uh, now, um, for instance, there is a famous fieldwork by Tanya Luhmann, Persuasions of the Witchcraft, from 1989. Uh, she was one of the first anthropologists who did fieldwork um, in uh, Britain among Wiccans and uh, also followers of, of Diane Fortune, Fraternity of the Inner Light. And she formulated the interpretative drift theory, uh, claiming that uh, practitioners start practicing and then uh, kind of their whole worldview and mindset changes step by step. They start checking um, whether the rituals might have worked or not, and uh, they kind of um, discard negative. Uh, what well, doesn't work? Yeah, uh, negative um, uh, data and uh, kind of fil begin to filter and um, she calls this interpretative drift and oh, you know what so you, you mean that they kind of um, they discard the things that are not in accordance with their belief system yes yes it's uh, okay. like a gradual process how you how that's how she explains how you can actually start believing in magic mm. even by, if it doesn't work by ignoring the times it didn't work. Yeah, I'm exaggerating a bit. She's she's more open uh, also to the to the emic perspectives, but in the end, it comes down to the idea of self-delusion in one way or the other. Um, and this is not my impression. That's that's also why I work work on this because I, I've um, I've also worked on chaos magic, and um, I know quite a few practitioners. I've talked to them, and these people don't delude themselves. They, I mean. As, as you probably all know, because you watched her uh, video on chaos magic, uh, chaos magicians, they are highly akin to science and experimentation and systematic approaches. They all write ritual diaries since the 1970s, so there's tons of, um, actually, data. And they write down, they are even forced to write down negative uh, results, because that helps you improve the technique. Chaos magicians didn't invent that because that was already recommended by Alistair Crowley. It was, was like very experimental, uh, very systematic. He wanted to kind of throw out the religionist stuff and really make, uh, turn it into a science, even though he's also ambivalent uh, because he has religion uh, or, or religionist aspects 
in his understanding of Iwas and uh, his holy, holy guardian age, etc. That's also a longer story. But the point is, uh, the psychologization, uh, as I then thought, uh, is certainly one process which is important. Also, when you look at sigil magic, it's a completely secularized technique. And you even only take your wish and uh, use the letters and uh, rearrange the letters and then you suck it into your subconsciousness and believe that it works. <laughs> this is a purely 20th century uh, psychological technique. It's an invention of the modern period, clearly. Already as Austin Osman Spare conceptualized it. And um, um, yeah, that's that. I think I lost my track. Um, so, yeah, you have psychological so the, the reasons technique, why, psychological yeah, the reasons magic, why, uh, but then, yeah, but then um, I thought, no, that's not the whole story. When you look at the modern history of magic, and uh, I, did, uh, I attempted to map like um, the multiplicity of groups, currents, practitioners, it's an ongoing project. And then, along, along, uh, when you look at the groups, the majority of them, they are not psychologized. They, uh, they clearly believe in the external reality of certain spirits. So, there is a, a religion, uh, religious element there, which is, um, I mean, th that's one of the core, maybe, demarcation lines. Do you believe in the external reality of a spirit, or, or do you think it's only an aspect of your psyche, or even only a brain process, as even Crowley himself suggested? But still, there are many modern practitioners who believe in the external reality of magic. There are many so-called traditionalists, who just think that as older a grimoire is the better because it's more authentic and more uh, efficacious. There are uh, very well-known traditionalists such as Frater Acher or Joseph Lisiewski maybe, also Stephen Skinner and others. And um, there are groups who clearly uh, have a religious agenda, I would say. Uh, so there is, there is psychologization but there is also enchantment or re-enchantment, as modern scholars also would maybe say. Um, so, seculariz secularization comes, th there is something out there, but then there is a backlash or a reaction in many modern people <coughs> to stick to religion. And this also happens in the realm of magic. Uh, so, there are many religionist groups, traditional groups, traditionalist groups, for instance, Martinists, they practice the rituals as they were in the 18th, 17th century, where, uh, or even earlier, Freemason-based, uh, before secularization ever happened. So, then I would say there is an ambivalency. Some people uh, uh, like the tradition, and from this perspective, magic just went through. When you look at these groups, it is a continuous history and secularization didn't even change much. Uh, so you have many traditionalist magical groupings. You have today people practicing medieval astral magic, people practicing stuff from the Greek magic papyri or the picatrix. Uh, so people find it attractive to, uh, to try out this stuff. And so this is not psychologization. Uh, <coughs> yes. So here are already two sides of the coin, but the coin has even more sides um, because then there is also uh, clearly um, something like 
popularization, of course, in the 20th century. So magic gradually enters mainstream culture or subcultures or what Christopher Partridge would call our culture. Mm -hmm. uh, the, more and more fantasy literature over the course of the 20th century with like a peak of in the, in the past two decades, uh, starting with Harry Potter. So Harry Potter was clearly a global game changer. Uh, uh, Harry Potter valorized magic even in a very basic everyday language uh, way. So magic is probably the most used trigger word in advertisements since uh, the late 90s. Uh, when you enter Amazon.com and uh, choose the category of electronic project, products, enter magic, you have 50,000 uh, computer products that have magic in the product title. This is a new thing, okay? Magic is so positive, we have a positive feeling that uh, marketing specialists use it to uh, tap onto our, our, to it. our feelings. And this is uh, completely new, and this is also interesting uh, from the perspective of the polemical discourse and the, the identificatory discourse, which I still differentiate. The polemical discourse, I would say the anti-magical discourse, was dominant throughout most of Western history um, maybe even until the mid-20th century, I would say. But then in the 50s, 60s, maybe starting with Lord of the Rings, but then especially the hippie movement and the uh, feminist movement and all these movements from the 1960s, when they uh, started to proclaim uh, that Gandalf should be the president, you know, a magician should be, uh, or yeah, uh, a wizard should be the president, um, things changed and uh, it became even more severe with, with Harry Potter and today I would say that the discourse of the positive discourse, the identificatory discourse is now dominant at least in pop culture you know it is still difficult for practicing magicians I mean to uh, run around in their robes uh, or say to their you know um, yeah. boss you know I practice magic exactly. it's not something that is acceptable yes it is still um, I would say it changes slowly but it's, it is still for some people necessary to live a double life you know but uh, I would say uh, in the big culture from from the bird's eyes perspective on, on the development of this I would say that these are unique times so for the first time in, the, in Western history of magic so conceptual history the positive discourse has become dominant mm. um, and this is quite fascinating this is also an interesting thing to think about why why is it so now uh, how could Harry Potter be so successful you know and yeah and this is also another uh, explanation which I tried to present yesterday when talking about the resilience of magic. Um, magic in the 20th century was able to tap onto something like Zeitgeist, you know. Mm. Uh, it reflects many aspects of uh, how modern society is developed in total uh, in the 20th century, at least in the West, what is often uh, considered as mo modern or modernity. Uh, is um, experimental approach, focus on the self, uh, self-empowerment, um, detraditionalization, uh, privatization of religion, 
um, individualization, um, every, everything that you can find uh, in, in modern spiritualities, new religious movements, new age, it, it's all this aspect that people, uh, that, uh, that religion becomes much more individual, uh, much more um, self-focused, uh, self-improvement, and, um, and magic is like the perfect manifestation of this. It's still at the margins, it's still, it's still maybe considered to be weird even by New Ages, who kind of fear uh, power or what say it's, uh, maybe they would say it's egocentric. Um, yeah, and I think that's also, I mean, magic and modernity, they actually make a good match. That was one of my claims. Uh, there is no reason to argue that magic fades in modernity or that there's a decline of magic or that there's even a disenchantment going on and Zauberung, you know, in the sense of Max Weber. Uh, so many scholars might have assumed that in the early 20th century or even still in the mid 20th century, but it clearly did not happen. To the contrary, magic is alive and well. Uh, it's still not super huge, okay? We're talking maybe about a few million people. When you count Vika uh, as a magical group, which I do, because uh, Vika is just embedded in Vika. the history. Vika is just embedded in the history of Western learned magic. So Gardner was a pupil of Crowley, and uh, Book of uh, and uh, his rites. They he implemented rites from the tradition of Western learned magic. Um, then, of course, many things developed further uh, on its own right, but um, so weekends maybe, depending on the counting, one to two million uh, adults, um, and then uh, that's quite a lot. The other groups, they are not so big. Um, OTO, for instance, as far as I know, uh, has 4,000 active members worldwide now, which is small. It's very um, present in the scene, so, but when you actually look at the members, not, not so much. So, from the viewpoint of the history of religion or religionist study of religion, this is a small movement. I'm not saying that magic will conquer the world, uh, but it survives at the margins of modern spirituality and maybe it grows, mm. but it does not decline. Yeah, I say one of the interesting things about uh, magic and magic practitioners is that it's not solely reducible to the numbers mm. because even, you know, a small number of people can be very influential yes. beyond, you know, the, the numbers themselves. Mm. Uh, and another thing, um, it was really interesting what you just said about, uh, you know, when you type in magic in the section of electronics on Amazon you find lots of different lots of things come up mm -hmm. and that made me think that um, actually you have so many magic or witchcraft themed um, products now you know even makeup or uh, I don't know there are lots of things like yeah. um, or even uh, clothes and bags and uh, so I think that perhaps there's apart from the magic practice. So the fact that you said, because I was thinking when you said uh, this is the first time in history that magic has become positive, you know, the, the positive idea of magic has, mm. become, has become prevalent. Yes. That made me think that is not only true 
for the practitioners, but also for the culture in general. Because, yes. for instance, uh, with social media, there is also the rise of certain aesthetics. Mm. They become like su subculture almost. Yeah. So you have like uh, a lot of these uh, aesthetics based on witchcraft and magic, yeah. even on Instagram and TikTok and uh, on social media more generally. Mm -hmm. And so they also, in a way, contribute to uh, putting magic in a positive light yeah. to the culture at large. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, you know, magic is not only being portrayed positively by practitioners, but also by, yeah. you know, those who are not really practitioners, but just have um, a sympathy yeah. in a way for, for magic, uh, even in music. And, you know, there are many different ways in which yes. uh, magic has become, um, yeah, pervasive yeah. in a more positive light. Yeah, it seems to have become more and more, right? So over the past decades, uh, this process have, has uh, uh, kind of taken over whole mm -hmm. subcultures, which is um, what Christopher Partridge has called, calls our culture. It's like the merging of previously esoteric hidden traditions with pop culture. So it's really a pop a pop thing, but it, it is of course a resilience process because the more established these uh, things become and the more the more they become part of a symbolic language which is used in everyday uh, culture, the more likely it is um, that, that it, it stays and flourishes and that actually people become interested in, in doing the real thing. Mm. So it started with, uh, uh, of course, Many start with literature or movies or television series TV shows. <laughs> like Buffy or uh, yeah, now there's, uh, Sabrina. Sabrina. And there is actually, there has never been made thorough research on this, but uh, a, few, uh, a few people have uh, realized that these series alone, Buffy and Sabrina, they have heightened the number of people who asked Wiccan and Neopagan groups if they, if they could participate. And I think... Um, or charmed as well, yeah. Charmed, yes, charmed. And then, and I mean, then came Harry Potter. And today, magic is all over the place uh, in, in, uh, in television and also in computer games. And as far as I know, so I, I, I know a few um, scholars who have done field work and who have done interviews. And usually what the practitioners say is that they got into it through this series or this uh, even computer game they became interested and uh, only i would say the minority says oh i've started reading crowley so this is rather the exception how would you come across crowley i mean we're still trained in regular schools uh, where crowley is not part of the <laughs> curriculum and where magic is not Hopefully considered to be something which works and which uh, could kind of uh, enrich your life, so it's always this kind of a secondary socialization and the more pop culture there is around, the, the more likely it is um, to attract to attract people. I think, I think this process uh, accelerates and uh, now we have like the first generation of grown-ups who have read Harry Potter in their childhood. So let's see what happens now, you know? Mm. The assumption would be that um, more, more uh, that the the community grows, I would say, or 
modern magic thrives. But I don't know. There is no, there is not enough research, especially not in the con uh, contemporary uh, developments. It's also so much material. Uh, um, yeah, there are so many traditions and groups and groups and so. so much literature and websites. And I tried this a bit to to map map this, but it's even difficult for one person yeah. to do it. You would need like specialists in a, in every single subsection. Oh no! Who pays for that? <laughs> but yeah. I mean, it's even big data. Okay, uh, from from scholarly perspective, it's so much data that you actually have to handle it. In uh, you cannot handle it in, a, it in a classical way. Just uh, like collecting, you know, mm. writing papers and then yeah, but cardboard mm. doesn't work like that anymore. Yeah, that's very true. So we will see what happens in the future. Definitely, I feel very encouraged because uh, the the panels on esotericism at this conference, at the European conference, were very well attended, mm -hmm. uh, and I really enjoyed all of the all of the papers. So, to, you know, I don't know how representative this conference is of the field at large, but it seems promising. That yeah. perhaps the field of historicism is growing, and hopefully in the future we will have more research and more university willing to pay <laughs> scholars to study these kind of things. So I would say the field is growing. So I'm also um, in the European Society for the Study of Western Esotericism, and the conferences they grow every year. I would say more, more or less, and um, yeah. So, there is something going on. The academia opens up, I would say. And uh, my impression is that this is also um, speeding up a bit. More positions, more people interested, more PhD students. Mm. Um, yes, that's uh, zeitgeist. It's, uh, this is just, just, it reflects the popularity in the population uh, is reflected by the scholarly um, field, mm. uh, which is, of course, exactly what it should be like. So we should study uh, what's going on out there, right? Yes. Um, I think when when uh, we look at the study of magic, in particular, um, I would also say that. Since the last 30 years, um, there was an extreme acceleration of research in all disciplines, uh, especially history. So suddenly classicists who have neglected the sources for like 50-60 years, in the 90s they start suddenly start doing one conference on ancient magic after the other. And also in um, medieval history, uh, in Egyptology, even in, uh, in Judaism studies, Isla Islamic studies, they also start now, like the past 10 years. So, in all these disciplines, more and more study of magic, uh, but it's still very historical. And um, what I'm actually waiting for is that there's also, uh, sooner or later, or at some point, um, also psycho more psychological study, anthropological. Uh, study and maybe even in some weird future 
um, experimental studies, mm. you know, evidence-based study of magic. Mm. Why not? So many people have alleged successes uh, with uh, sigils, so why not uh, sit 30 people in, in a room, let them draw sigils and have an experimental setting and see what happens. I, I'm open to that. But uh, in, the acad in academia this, um, This would be maybe even a paradigm shift. Mm. You know, academia constituted itself maybe even in explicit neglect of magic. So science is not magic, and modernity is not magic, but so many people practice magic. <laughs> and they are still modern. Yes, they're modern, they're educated. They are educated, they're... they uh, They are certainly... Um, not always self-deluding self individuals. So there is something, there is much more to explore, I would say. Definitely. Yes. And on this positive note, I guess that we can end our interview here. And yes. uh, thank you so much for, for this interview, Bernd. I think it was fantastic. So oh, much great. information. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I'm sure that my audience is gonna, is gonna love it, but obviously don't forget to leave us a comment uh, in the comment section because I definitely want to know what you think about what we, what we said, especially what <laughs> Ben said. And uh, yeah, thank you again. Thank you, Anjana, that was fun. <laughs> Thanks for the invitation and have fun watching. Okay. <laughs> thank you for you, watching. You saying, thank you for watching. You just watched it. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Thank you for sticking <laughs> up to this point. <laughs> okay. Bye for now. Bye.